I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. The Studio Ghibli Collection, Part 8. Arietti, From Up on Poppy Hill, and The Wind Rises. Discover a world beneath our own. Where little people have made their home. You've been outside again. What if a human being saw you? At night, they borrow things that are never missed. They stay out of sight. Of that, they insist. The world of the human beings. Father, borrowing is such fun. Please be careful. But brave Ariete, she dreams of more. For her, the world is there to explore. So when a young boy sees her one day, a friendship is born in an extraordinary way. Now join them on their journey as they both discover an amazing adventure that's unlike any other. From Studio Ghibli, creators of Spirited Away, Howl's Moving Castle, and Ponyo, comes the story of a friendship that will touch your heart, where the smallest person plays the biggest part. Arietti, inspired by Mary Norton's The Borrowers. Okay, Arietti or Arietti the Borrower in Japan or The Secret World of Arietti in North America was released in 2010 and for the first time in a while it wasn't a Miyazaki at the uh, helm. This was uh, directed by Hiromasa Yonobayashi, or he prefers the nickname Maro. He was, I think, like 36 when this film... He was 37 when it came out, and he yeah, was, at and he was the time, this film. the youngest director that I was they like, had. You, I was like, you young rapscallion, but then when you actually watch him in interviews, he is a sweet little guy who's very shy and awkward, and is like, look, I've got, I've got some drawings here to show you, and he is not a presenter. This is the case in 2010, and this is the case now. Ghibli, in losing Miyazaki, Hayao, senior is losing their leader and then they get him back because he comes out of retirement and then they lose him again and then they get him back and then they lose him again and then they get him back and uh, Studio Ponoc which went off to be formed in 2015 also took a very leaderly type character away so while Maro is a fantastic director he's not a leader and then you watch him in interviews and he's just very slight and he doesn't have that kind of like, I am going to head up a team and take charge. Yeah. So that would suggest then that the other guy who founded Ponok with him, mm. uh, Nishimura, is the, I want to say the dominant one, but the, the leader type character, the person who has the drive and the direction uh, to um, put it out there and Maro is providing the um, creative element. Yeah. But, I mean, the, those two are incredibly talented, and we'll be talking about Ponok in a bit. Maro directed two of my favourite Ghiblis in the modern era. This, and another one coming up when Marnie was there. 
Uh, this one I'd already seen once before. Marnie was there I'd never seen, and so that second one hit me like a freight train. This one, it was more a case of, oh, I remember this, and then I sat down and watched it, and my eyes started brimming with tears, and it wouldn't stop. And then the whole way through, I was just loving the aesthetic. It might be that this was the first time we'd seen it in uh, HD. It might be that it was the first time we'd seen it on the OLED, or the first time that we'd seen it in Japanese, because the original American version might have been the one we saw before. Which, by the way, the little boy in it was voiced by a young Tom Holland. And that little boy, whom everybody, everybody liked, liked, grew up to be Spider-Man. <laughs> But yeah, the, it is an adaptation of The Borrowers, the uh, uh, the book, and that's by Mary Norton. And there have been various adaptations in the past, including there was a BBC TV show with, uh, I want to say, Ian Holm when we were young. Quite possibly. Uh, the only one person I remember being in it was Daniel Newman. That was in 1992. Ian Holm. Oh, well done. As Pod Clock, Penel the dad. Pe yes, Penelope Wilton as Homily. I do remember her. Hello, Pickle. Her? Yes. Wow. And Rebecca Callard as Arietti. There was also a 1997 film with John Goodman that I never actually saw, but I want to now. I'd like to watch all of this Borrowers related stuff. With Jim Broadbent this time as Pod, the dad, Celia Imry as the mother homily, <laughs> Tom Felton, and that little, little boy, boy whom, whom nobody loved grew up to be Draco Malfoy. <laughs> Raymond Picard as Spiller, an outie borrower. That means he's wild and goes out in the garden. Yes, he is not dependent on humans. Yeah, and uh, Dean McKeegan. Nice. Uh, Flora Newbigin as uh, Arietti. So yeah, we'll we'll be watching that as well. Now, this version of Arietti very much stays with the 14-year-old girl of this pair of parents who has lived a sheltered existence terrified of humans and weirdly the thing this reminded me of most and maybe that's one of the reasons why i liked it more this time because we're always seeing it from their borrower's point of view the humans are absolutely massive and they move slowly and they are figureheads of horror it reminded me of Attack on Titan. I was just thinking that, yeah. Titans killed my parents. Oh, God. <laughs> and I'm like, I can see why you're terrified of the big people. What do they call us? Biggins? Either way. Human beans. <laughs> or maybe that's the BFG. That's the I don't BFG. know. But yeah, it's kind of like Sophie in Giant Country in that scenario. Uh, only um, Arietti, it doesn't have a BFG to protect her, at least not to begin with. She's uh, very curious and explorative. She kind of likes Spiller, who visits occasionally, but he's not very verbal and not mentally engaging in to her. In this version, we don't really get Spiller until the very end. Yeah, he like, turns up in the middle. Back at, oh, does he? Yeah, yeah. Okay. he's just not much of a, he doesn't make much of an impact on it. Okay. But uh, effectively, her father's a stern, bit of a taskmaster, and her mother is full of anxiety all the time. Well, we might get discovered, it'll be terrible. And again, they, they take the cottage core to the max in this one because they, everything they've had to borrow from humans, they've kind of built up their home around them, kind of like a mouse filling its hole with the clutter scavenged, which I really liked the way that uh, it felt like a, a strange ethical scenario where they have to call themselves borrowers because otherwise it feels like they're stealing all the time. It's like Remy the Rat with not wanting to steal food. Yeah, and they are very particular. On the same scale. What what Pod 
says to her is we never take anything that will be missed. Yeah. Now obviously part of that is they're more likely to start looking for us if we take stuff that will be missed. But a, a big element of it is if you take something that they won't miss, it's not really stealing because they could have just lost it. Mm. Hayao Miyazaki mentioned in an interview, like, oh, he keeps going on about his bloody clothes peg. And you know, I, I, I tell him not to mention the clothes peg, referring to uh, Maro, the uh, director. I, am, I assume what he's referring to is the little clothes peg that Arietti uses as a hair clip. Uh, I, I actually thought it was a piece of stationery, like mm. a, a little crocodile clip. Yeah, it's a tiny little clip. But it might actually just be a clothes peg. Uh, but it's totemic in the same way that we discussed with uh, Victoria uh, of a thing that is that person. This little clip always gives Arietti scale. She's got a long sewing pin as a sword that she keeps kind of in her belt which gives her a, an adventurer vibe. Uh, I noticed today for the first time when looking at the uh, um, production notes and the concept drawings, she's got this long pink dress and these big brown boots, brown hair with a long ponytail and a lot of pluck and big eyes. That's Aerith Gainsborough or Aerith depending on your region. It's it just it feels like something very decided when it came to to her design, but the the, the little clip gives her that personality, and like I said, the, the the sense that she's tiny is really put across each time, because the, you're constantly given this frame of reference. Yeah, I I love the pin sword, and it always makes me think of Reaper Cheek. Yeah, yeah. And the secret weapon of this, it's actually twofold. One, this is the greenest Ghibli I have ever seen. And I can't really describe it in words. The closest I can get is if you've ever been graced with being able to see an OLED screen, the one color that really pops on OLED is light green, vibrant spring green. It makes you feel like, I've never seen green before, but now I have. If you've ever looked at a, a, the original first model PlayStation Vita, that has an OLED screen. The Switch OLED has an OLED screen. If you can ever find an OLED TV in a TV shop, just so you can check it out, see if you can find a soccer game or something and look at the green there. Green on our OLED screen, this green was overwhelming, but not in an oppressive way, in an immersive way where I felt like the that green has always been nature in uh, Ghibli films, but this was giant nature. And it is absolutely transportive. What it made me think of, and you're absolutely right about the cottage core, because everything takes place in this this house and garden in springtime there's there's a song called an english country garden and that is very much what this garden makes me think of except that because you're seeing it from borrower's eye level it's more like a forest because all the plants are so huge but as a, as a comparison when i was in my late teens i visited ireland for the first time the republic mm, of ireland i remember you told me and this. Once we got out into the countryside, there was something about a, the, the quality of the air. And I, I suspect it was probably just the fact that I had never in my life 
been this far from built up industrialised areas because in most places in England even if you're in a, a rural area you have to go quite away before you're away from a town and then you're pretty close to being on to the next town and this was somewhere where there just there weren't cars there was the odd one every now and again you were lucky if there was a road and the green was I, I just stared at it because I was like, I didn't know grass was supposed to be this colour because I was used to it always being this sort of slightly muted dark green. Yeah, we've been told about England's verdant pastures green. We never <laughs> bloody see them. I, I, yeah. I didn't see that level of, of vibrancy till we went to Italy. And mm. it was like, well, yes. the Tuscan countryside's yeah, absolutely. absolutely green. So every time we say that it's pissing same. down with rain, yeah, well, that does help the grass grow. I don't know, dude. Italy seems to have it <laughs> sussed with gorgeous, balmy weather. Indeed. On the flip side, red alert, 37 degree heat waves. That's 98 Fahrenheit. When you look at regular grass after watching this, sour as poison. Hmm. You'd spit it out, you would. It's astroturf at that mm, point. Yes. yes. Uh, and the other secret weapon is the music by Cecile Corbel, who is new to Ghibli. I don't think she's done any other films after this. And she is a mistress of the harp, which gives everything a watery and emotional and delicate feel. And she provides vocals herself and learned various different languages to sing different songs yeah. for different translations. I believe she is French, mm -hmm. uh, but she wanted to be able to sing this track in as many languages as she could. Yeah. And the score is absolutely hypnotic. That what she provides for this, the emotional backbone of the movie, you could watch it on mute and it would look beautiful and you would get what was going on. Or you could just listen to the score and be transported anyway.
The the score it reminds me most of is another French one, um, Coraline, which has some absolutely fantastic uh, harp work and that kind of plucking going on the whole way through and a very kind of watery feel to it. But also it's a it's the creepy cousin of Arietti. Uh, that's by Bruno Coulet and. It's the presence of a French choir there giving it the uh, uh, the vocals that also just sort of adds to that. But yeah, enchanting score. And the story is fairly simple. Arietti is a 14-year-old girl. She wants to see the world. She's lived in this house, as far as we can tell, her entire life. Her parents, I think, may have lived somewhere else besides. There's definitely been... There's rumours of the there being little people in this house from a long time ago. So clearly this is like a borrower's place to live. Yeah, but not them, and they didn't know the previous mm. generations of borrowers. Indeed. Um, but there's also hints of them, Pod and Homily, that is, having had a slightly more dangerous life before, mm. either before Arietti was born or when she was very tiny. So they tell her Homily a lot of don't leave the fire circle stories. Absolutely. Homily in particular is absolutely traumatised by something. She is terrified to to leave the confines of the house. Yeah. She doesn't really want Arietti to go out there with her dad, but she knows that somebody has to go out and borrow, and ultimately, as long as Arietti stays with her father, she should be relatively safe. Oh, notable that uh, the American voice is Saoirse... Well, the Irish voice is Saoirse Ronan, which is perfect choice at this point. Uh, so she's 14... There is a 10-year-old boy, and that was a very distinct choice to make him considerably younger than her to slightly even out the power dynamic. Yes. So he's much bigger, but she's seen a bit more of the world. Well, a bit more of the house. I'm fairly certain he's seen a bit more of the world. The point is, her brain is older. Yeah, and she understands a bit more, and, and she is more empathic and responsive than he is because he has that sort of he, he's a very delicate little boy because he has the implication is he has some kind of heart condition mm. and he's um, he's got an operation coming up but it is not guaranteed that he will live through it yeah. which gives him a uh, kind of a beautiful tragedy yeah um, but he's also got a little bit of a 10 year old boy's blundering going oh yeah on. he is a blunt instrument and there were times when I was like Dude, think about it for two more seconds. Ask before doing. You're terrifying. You're a titan. Anyway, so the t- uh, he spots her, and then they start to kind of leave things for each other in a kind of... Like, she returns a sugar cube that she was borrowing in, in a kind of, I don't want to take, you know, like, if, if you want this back. And then he kind of leaves the sugar cube for her in a kind of, please have this... And they they communicate in a, in a very chaste sort of like nineteenth century way, and it never develops into anything particularly romantic and definitely not sexual. So it doesn't get weird and seedy. And we've seen some anime in recent times where we're like, oh, thank God, some purity for I was goodness sake. I was just thinking, why did you even need to mention that? But yeah given some of the stuff we've seen lately. Yeah, you appreciate it more once you've seen some of that stuff. (laughs) Indeed. (sighs) And there is a rotten, disreputable cat who immediately chases Arietti and uh, is kind of a nemesis for her. And the boy is very calm about this. Like He he never seems to fathom... You do realise that your fat, roly-poly cat could end her in half a moment. And it never really seems to come across. And at the end... 
she sort of makes friends with the cat, and it's it's not so much unearned, but it's like, oh, thank goodness. Like, it's, it's a bit of a swing, but it feels like the cat kind of accepts that this is not something that is necessarily... F they are not for eating. She is not a mouse, you can tell by the fact that she's mm. got a clip in her... Oh, no, they do look a bit like ears. They do, yeah. <laughs> and uh, the... Uh, effectively, she's not supposed to fraternise with this boy and that he's one of the big people and they're not supposed to uh, inter interact with each other. And then the boy kind of gets gifted a doll's house... And uh, but like his his aunts, uh, he's staying yeah, so with. So the dolls, the, you know, you said that there's rumours that they used to be borrowers Little people, who lived yeah. in his house. So um, the dolls' house was made by I want to say it's like his great aunt or his his mm -hmm. grandfather or something like that. But somebody who is no longer around when they were a child. His grandfather found out about the borrowers made the house made for them the to live house in house for them it is actually designed for borrowers but because of this whole we can't go and mm. interact with the big people the borrowers never came to live in it so it's like this this masterpiece of a, a residence that's been constructed. Yeah. It's everything in there, like the, the stove works mm. and the teapot pours. It's just, it's a, it's a very small amount, but it, it's never been used. It's a, a house that was created for a family who never came to live in it. And they give it, they gift it to him and he's like, oh, that's fantastic. And in an ideal world, he would be like, okay, Ariete, I have something for you and your family, but you're going to have to trust me. Can you get them to? And for there to be some strife in getting through to the family, and eventually he's like, this house is yours. If you want it, I will protect you. And I would love it if he was that level of sensitive and sweet. What he does is find where they're living under a floorboard in a closet, rip the floorboard off while uh, the mother is just sort of darning, and just like, so your, imagine your ceiling is wrenched off and a titan is leering down at you. And as and, you and says, shit- I brought you a kitchen. As you <laughs> shit yourself to death, he tears a hole in your house further and then drops a kitchen in it. And you're like, okay. <laughs> It's so ham-fisted. Yeah. And the film doesn't seem to really want to chastise him well, for it. Well, it, it doesn't, but it, that does feed into one of the fundamental points of the film, I think, anyway, which, which is because it is contrasted with the end, where Spiller turns up and they go with him. They, they, there's, there's a whole section where they're talking about how it isn't safe anymore, there are no borrowers anywhere nearby, uh, they're running out of resources, and this is not really a place that they can continue living. This, this situation is not sustainable, and the only way to, um, to resolve it is to leave and to find somewhere better. And the presence of Spiller, there's a, there's a kind of a... It's not a dichotomy exactly, but the, the distinction between Spiller and Show is that if they moved, say in this, this ideal world where the house that was made for them, they moved into it, they lived in it, they are entirely dependent on the owner of that house to protect them, to keep them secret, or to uh, in some way be able to shield them from other humans who would maybe not be quite so benevolent. And again, you can you have that sort of the, the desperate uh, sadness of you might not live through this operation. Exactly. If he might not be there in a week. Yeah. If they move, you know, if they were to, if 
Arietti and her family moved into the house and then he died, they are totally at the mercy of everybody else around them. And there is a there's a, a protracted scene where that I think the housekeeper puts homily in a jar. Yeah. Doctor Octopus turns up goes, ah, a borrower, like I'd always suspected, wrenches Homily up. Homily practically has a heart attack. She again. Sh- again. She shoves her in a jar, stabs the top of the jar to give some air holes. And- think she's not a flipping chrysalis, for God's sake. That there is so much dehumanization of these tiny, tiny people. Um, but the, the life that Spiller leads them off to in the end mm. is dangerous. It is... Uh, potentially not going to be any more reliable or safer than the life they have now. They have to float off downstream like the commando elite from the end of uh, Small Soldiers. But they are not going to be dependent on anybody else but themselves, and they will be in an environment where they have access to what they need without having to rely on what humans throw away. Which means that if the humans disappeared, because that's the problem, the humans aren't leaving enough stuff out anymore, they they don't have enough to live on. If the humans disappear and they're out in the wild where they have access to food and water and shelter, independently of humans, then they're going to be okay. Again, given charge to make this myself, the only little differences I would make is that this kid is incredibly considerate and really tries to give them a home as opposed to blundering around the place and, and not being considerate. Especially when you've got Tom Holland right there. Absolutely. You know he can do this performance. Absolutely. And you have him tearfully saying, please stay, I'll protect you. He pretty much does that anyway, but make it a proper melodrama from some kid who actually really does think and is careful but you know that he's so fragile and he might not be there and it's fucking heartbreaking it's there it's just not executed with the level of sharpness that i would but it it does still have that sense of yearning they cannot they cannot exist in this gilded cage that is not the ideal life for them yeah it is clear they are t- from two very different separate families and that there are thing- forces keeping them apart. So when they say goodbye, it really, f- you feel it. And the music carries you through all of that. The, the theme song for this is absolutely wonderful. It's, it's a masterpiece. It's so beautiful. Yeah. And I almost forgot after all that setup, as her parting gift, she gives him the only thing she can give him. The The totemic hair clip to hold on to during his operation.
from up on Poppy Hill. In some places, you can tell what time of year it is by which flowers are in bloom. In Yokohama, it's which boats you see passing through the harbor. We have a great view of the boats from my house on Poppy Hill. It seems the whole country is eager to get rid of the old and make way for the new. But some of us aren't so ready to let go of the past. Umi, I know how much you miss your father. I hope you find someone. Then maybe you won't need to raise those flags anymore. Umi, come see this! What is it? Oh, looks like someone's getting your messages! supply ship, but his ship sank. What's this? That's a boat I often see passing by. This might sound crazy, but I think it's answering your flags. Answering my flags? From up on Poppy Hill, uh, one of the lesser-known Ghibli's from uh, 2011, uh, this was during one of Miyazaki's periods of... Hmm, excuse me. This was during one of Hayao Miyazaki's periods of retirement, <laughs> and it was directed by his son, Goro Miyazaki. And it is... I don't think I prefer it personally to Earthsea. Because I like Earthsea more than most people like Earthsea. Mm. And I know that Ursula K. Le Guin fans hate the Earthsea film. This one was more well-received because it is a more grounded piece, mm. which feels like it doesn't tread on any toes as much. It may tread on some toes, depending on your sensibilities. Just about to say. Um, well, do yeah. say it. Say it. Okay. Casual incest references. <laughs> Let's make sure nobody pisses off Ursula K. Le Guin. Oh my goodness. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So this is the brother fucking movie. Um, <clears throat> it's not. No, that's. I'm making it sound so much seedier than it actually is. What it is is a scenario in Japan in the 1960s. A while after the Second World War, wherein the, the, the essential premise is a girl starts to really feel things for a uh, one of the schoolboys who, when things get complicated, turns out maybe in fact a blood relation to her. The, 
The two of them are descended from a group of friends who were in the Navy together yeah. during the war. They had a tontine. They were searching for the treasure of the Sierra Madre. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> she lost her father. He was orphaned. I think his mother was... Oh, wait, wait, wait. We can't, we can't tell what actually happened because you don't actually find out what actually happened till the end. So okay. you, can, you can say what happened at least as much as we know mm. because it is very much a mystery. Yeah, okay. So she lost her father and he has sort of parental connections that are complicated as well and they bond over the rescuing of a clubhouse that the school are threatening to demolish because it's old and shabby and dirty. Is this in connection with the school paper? Uh, He works on the school paper um, on a regular basis and she starts helping them out with transcribing and printing. And then it becomes like an activist pamphlet with let's rescue this clubhouse as their chosen cause it a lot of it seems like the 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 circumstances of of what they're actually doing don't seem to be quite as important as when you're a teenager certain things seem really really important and you want to give your all to them and the relationships that form at that age sort of fall under that category um the uh there, there seems to be sort of a there's a, a nostalgic feel to it, even though it's not framed as a. I remember back when I was a teenager, this happened. But it sort of feels like you could put that wrap around there, and it would feel very natural. There is a sense of estrangement from the father, which feels appropriate for Goro to tra- uh, to tackle. Mm, yeah, yeah, but that that's not the primary issue i think it's it's more about uh authority generally not listening to the youth in this particular context and they eventually they they have petitions they decide all right well they want to demolish the clubhouse because it's a mess if we clean it up if we make it very clear to them that we are actually using it and and for for good reasons then maybe they'll let us keep it and I think the the sort of turning point is that they find the right adult to convince and that's what gives them their their window of opportunity to you might be able to save this situation. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's at odds with a lot of other uh, very parentally reverent Japanese art yes. wherein that it would be unthinkable to go against the wishes of your parents Absolutely. or your elders or your teachers. Yeah. There's always a respect required from the young. And there's there's something significant, I think, about the fact that the the children or the teenagers rather in this are they are war babies, but they are war babies. They were too young to remember what was going on. And they have grown up in a post-war period, which is not, it is not the America boom post-war period, but it is a, a, a time period that has a definite sense of rebuilding. And it, it's not about, it's not exactly about growth, but it is about reseeding things, mm. that, that there was a lot that was lost. And what threads you can still keep 
and particularly ones that you can weave into something new are extremely valuable. Yeah. I described it earlier today as as the little losses that you can't that aren't even accounted for as a result of war. Mm. Uh, what eventually transpires is that for these three male friends had sired children, and then it becomes very complicated regarding who they were; those children were left with, and where those children ended up. When it seems like they are in fact related. Yumi, the uh, 16-year-old high school student, tells Shun, this boy that she's been uh, getting closer and closer to, that she doesn't care if he's her brother, she still loves him in a specifically romantic way. And she blurts this out, like, this is after much soul-searching. She's not just uh, responding through teen hormones, she is... Like, looking through herself and going, this is actually how I feel. And obviously, she is a teenager at exactly the time when you when you get fired up and the most confused and the most passionate. But as an expression, it's impossible not to go a bit, ah, what is this film saying? And then he uh, tells her he loves her too. And then... The film fast-tracks itself to Act 3, wherein they find that uh, he was given to a different couple when he was an infant to look after, meaning that she is, in fact, not blood-related to him. Yeah, yeah. Because it was her father who brought him to his adoptive parents, (laughs) they have put two and two together and come up with 37. Yeah. Um, And it turns out that, in fact, his father had already died, and so her father was the only one of the friends Mm. left to bring him uh, back uh, back home again. So they are allowed to tearfully unite at the end, and it's not frowned upon. But oh, thank God, we're not half brother and sister after all. <laughs> it's a it's an unusual, dramatic point to hang your film upon. It is, and it's natural if you're going to look at the idea of okay, so these kids are kind of orphans and they're kind of foster kids and this sort of went under the radar of legality in some scenarios because during, amid the chaos of war, there was no one around to ask people to sign red tape mm-hmm. and there were miscommunications and deaths. And as a result, these existences and the specificity of where people came from slipped through the cracks. So this became a complication that was being faced at this era. Mm-hmm. Again, it makes it kind of a, phew, thank God, this wasn't going to turn into Appalachia. But it is a very sweetly delivered film. And the uh, I, I feel like we actually, you know, in watching the Japanese version, we missed out because the American version features Jamie Lee Curtis as the mother and Anton Yelchin as Shun, the boy, who was only a few years off a very untimely and tragic death. So we are going to go back to this one and rewatch it. Uh, it. It does feel more like it achieved its aims than with Earthsea, where it feels like there were not so much compromises, but differences in seeing the core story, which uh, fundamentally go against... Specifically, the author was pissed off. Mm, yeah. It's not just the fans berating it. Indeed. I mean, I, I will say I like this one. This is definitely a mid-tier Ghibli for me rather than a, a lower tier. Mm. 
it's it's lesser it's known. A bit, yeah. yeah, there's there's a couple of squeaky moments, but for the most part, it is sincere, and it presents an appealing complexity in terms of how the characters interact, and not just Yumi and Shun either. It, everybody around them uh, relates to each other in a in a what feels like a, a genuine and layered way. Mm. Also, knowing that uh, Goro Miyazaki's speciality is, in fact, architecture, I was uh, focusing this time on the way the buildings are arranged in each shot and what he chooses to put across the frame for us to look at and within to to, to contextualise what's going on. And uh, rather than looking at it as simply... This is a house, people are in it. Well, naturally, where else would they be when they're talking? Why, specifically, is uh, is this scene taking place here? And there's there's quite a lot of verticality in the school, uh, specifically with the, sort of the, 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 the treehouse thing that they're trying to yeah. tear down. There's a lot of, like, kids lining up uh, this, this staircase. We saw it in fairly quick succession with Matilda the Musical, mm-hmm. which is similarly set in a slightly dilapidated school. And... It has a charm to the clutter. Yes, it does. And that that whole, the feeling of the architecture and the buildings being important is, it, it goes beyond a simple case of housing and education establishments. You've got the comparison between the old ricketiness of the clubhouse and the new council buildings. You've got the fact that the town is right next to the ocean. And so ships are treated like buildings in terms of how they're framed and and the uh, importance of them they come and go but they are houses they are places that that people live in for the duration that they're out on the sea and it it does give it a much more solid sense of it's not exactly place. I don't quite know how to describe it. It's it's different from Hayao Miyazaki's fixation on landscapes and, and uh, forests and the open world of nature. And honestly, I, th- I feel like a lot of Earthsea is about the open spaces, but it's coming from somebody who isn't necessarily as dedicated to them as his father was. So this feels more like it's his territory. Yeah. Before we move on to The Wind Rises, the last Hayao Miyazaki film ever directed, until it wasn't, we just want to thank the patrons once again for keeping the lights on at School of Movies. And a big shout out to our top tier $15 sponsors who get a name check every episode. So thank you to Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alejandra Vargas, Alex Brewington, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clawson, Joe Gluck, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Marty Polmeyer, Matthew A. Siebert, Michael Hasco, Sean Doran, Toby Skills Jungius, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Tom Painter, Timu Hellas Hayu, Sarah Montgomery, and Kat Esman.
In response to this sweet, low-key effort from his son, uh, Hayao Miyazaki came out of retirement again and made The Wind Rises, which, if you know Miyazaki, and you're able to look at it with enough of a distance, and you're able to look at his body of work in context, really feels like a final piece, a final word, which is makes it all the more confusing that he came out of retirement yet again to make How Do You Live, which is being released later this year, and we still know very little about. Editor's note, it wasn't even called How Do You Live in the end. It was called The Boy and the Heron. Those two titles are nothing alike. Is this an Edge of Tomorrow scenario? Is The Boy and the Heron also based on a manga with a name like All You Need Is Kill? Similarly to a lot of the other domestic Ghibli's, takes place in a period Japan. There's no fantasy elements to it at all, aside from the fact that a major subtext of this film is dreams. It's about a engineer who created the Japanese Zero fighter named Jiro for World War II, which became a very widely used Japanese warplane. And we meet him as a child dreaming of flight. And uh, he, in his dream, meets his mentor, Giovanni Battista Caproni, played by Stanley Tucci in the American version, which we didn't see because we were seeing the, uh, the uh, Japanese language, who was, again, a real-life plane designer and is kind of the head mentor to this, uh, this boy, uh, and calls him Japanese boy, and comes back to him throughout the film in various incarnations to kind of check in on where the boy's philosophy lies regarding flight. One could interpret him as a part of, the, of Jiro's brain interrogating his sensibilities. Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is not fantastical in the same way that uh, Whispers of the Heart is mm. not fantastical. Although one of the people who uh, covered Whisper of the Heart said, have no doubt about it, Whisper of the Heart is a fantasy. I'm like, really? Yeah, who would imagine that a 16-year-old girl could write a novel? <laughs> um. No, it's, it's the world as viewed from her eyes, so that specifically... Yeah. Her perspective on great heights mm. has a fantastical element to yes, it, for example. Yes, it does. But, but there is something about Whispers of the Heart and The Wind Rises that... Whisper singular. Sorry, Whisper of the Heart. Um, where the fantasy elements are about dreams and imagination and therefore they are much more ephemeral than something like You Spirited Away or The Cat Returns where it is actually about the constructing of a fantasy world which is real and solid and to the people who live within it is the world even if the, the protagonist does not come from that world originally whisper and wind rises are both uh, tying in the fantasy itself and the dreams with the impulses of creativity mm, absolutely and and that does distinguish them from, say, for example, Grave of the Fireflies or My Neighbours the Yamadas, where there is very little, if any, in the way of escapist fantasy going on. Whenever it's there, it is portrayed as someone somewhat potentially unwisely trying to get out of a very real and, and dangerous situation. Yeah. Best part of the movie. Mm. Indeed. So The Wind Rises, like I say, is, is uh, uh, based on a, a real guy, and uh, it has to anchor itself in scenes of devastation. It, one of the first things we see is when the, the boy is, when he's 22, 
He graduates and they're employed at uh, aircraft manufacturer Mitsubishi. When Jiro is, I believe, age 20, traveling to study aeronautical engineering at the Tokyo Imperial University, he meets a young girl named Nahoko Satomi, and that's the point that the Great Kanto Earthquake hits. Now, I wasn't... either they, they showed the exact uh, year and I missed it, I thought that was the aftershocks of uh, Hiroshima and or Nagasaki. And the way the, the land ripples like uh, the circles in a mill pond when you throw a large stone into it to illustrate the effects of the earthquake as the land begins to sort of bunch up and then ruffle through and then the devastation caused. It's not literally that devastation but when you've finished seeing the film, it becomes absolutely apparent that they are queuing up scenes of wartime devastation with scenes of natural devastation. Yes. Illustrating that violence can be planned or violence can be unplanned. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And I think that there are, there are positives and negatives from making that parallel. It this film did come under fire for uh, seeming to glorify engines of war when in fact the whole point of the film yeah. is the conflict over that uneasy feeling. Absolutely. What I'm making is beautiful and it means so much to me and it will be used to kill people. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Miyazaki is a staunch pacifist clearly feels in two minds about this. Yeah, it, it actually really made me think of the scene in Kill Bill when... Hitori Hanzo says, after having broken his vow to make to never make another sword, he has this very solemn moment of, I have done it, I have once again made something that to will kill, kill people. people. Yeah. And there's a sense of having an artistic pride in what he's made, yet knowing what it will be used for. Mm. And that ambiguity, I think, extends to the to, to using the artistic parallel of the earthquake with wartime disaster. Fundamentally, juxtaposing the two is unfair because war doesn't have to happen. Earthquakes, we can't stop. We can mitigate the impact of them, absolutely, but we can't prevent them happening in the first place. Natural disasters are something that we have to prepare for and compensate for. War is something we have a choice about. Noteworthy as well, this was the first century and around about the time of the Kanto earthquake, running up to the first period in mankind's history where our weapons and the means of delivering those weapons had grown to the point where the aftermath could in fact resemble the devastation the of an earthquake. Disaster. And Absolutely. very specifically, we know earthquakes exist, we have seen the devastation they cause, we have a choice as to whether to visit that devastation on people on purpose, and we choose to do that. Yeah. And when we say choice, of course, we're talking about choice as human like yeah, human collectively, beings, collectively we have not yet evolved beyond war and the need to rattle our sabers 
enough that it kills people en masse. Yes. However, the flip side of that is that to the people at the bottom of the pile who are affected by the actions of war, it is a natural disaster. There's nothing they can do to... We are powerless. ...impact what happens. You can vote for who you want to vote for. It doesn't necessarily have... Only in a democracy. No, no, no. Well, that, that's what I'm. That's what I mean. Like that's the only thread of power that you have as a a working individual hmm. who is nothing to do with government or monarchies or people who are at the top making decisions, and therefore what comes out of war can often feel like natural disasters and. Um, therefore, the human spirit responds to it in the same way, and that's why you get this whole. You sort can of... join an angry guillotine mob should such a thing come along. Well, indeed. Um... Or you could instigate one. You may have trouble. <laughs> but that whole sort of keep calm and carry on thing, that blitz spirit that the British are so freaking proud of, it shouldn't be necessary because the the context in which it was embraced and attached to propaganda shouldn't happen. So Jiro is very, very focused on aviation and he throws himself into his work. He studies with a friend and uh, it, it's, it seems like they're going to spend their whole lives doing this and that they, they, they are almost uh, monastic in their devotion to simply aeronautical endeavours. Yeah, there is some proper compartmentalisation going on yeah. here. Uh, and this is complicated by... Nahoka Satomi, the uh, girl from the train that we mentioned before, who I never tied it together visually until I watched this recap. But um, the first time he meets her, his hat blows off in the wind on the train and she leaps sideways to grab it, nearly falling off the train herself and teeters and catches it from the wind and steals it back for him. <sighs> Perfect. And when he meets her again, uh, and they're both full adults, and it's less creepy, she's painting on the hill, and her umbrella blows away in the wind in full view of her father, and they pretty much write it off in a kind of, well, that's, that's our, my parasol is now gone. But he, being down in the valley, diligently runs to pick it up, and then gets brownie points from her father uh, for being a, a nice young gentleman. But there's a, a call and response in that setup and that payoff. But then later on, they're throwing a like a, a model glider back and forth between uh, them on her on a balcony and him on the ground. And the wind catches her again, and she's almost falling over the balcony just to be able to catch this glider. There's a teetering on the edge and endangering her life, which absolutely ties in with the decisions she makes within the film. Yeah, the the last time she leaps into the wind, she removes the option to catch her yeah. from him. And a refrain, a verbal refrain keeps coming up. The wind rises, we must live. Boil that down and super oversimplify it into earthquakes happen. We must carry on with our lives. We are effectively powerless against the wind. But it's also speaking of the resilience of flexibility, that image of the willow tree the reason that it lasts so long and appears so strong and resistant is because it's not resistant at all. It goes with the flow when it has to, and that means that when the rush of the, t the current has calmed down, it's still there, as opposed to a very rigid tree that's been pushed and snapped over. And 
Miyazaki's done windy films before. This is the most windy. Mm. <laughs> uh, you're, you're more aware of it feeling like a 3D space because the wind affects everything. Mm. It does that buffeting of clothes and, and frosting of hair in a way that has been present throughout Ghibli, but now the wind really means something. And it would appear that while the wind occurs... And what they can do in state of powerlessness against the chaos that they're dealt is choose whether to be together or not. And ultimately, they decide to uh, uh, stay close, and she succumbs to tuberculosis, which presents them with several choices. He continues working, and she goes to a sanatorium to convalesce, which... Back in those days, you might be able to fight off tuberculosis. Most likely, you would simply succumb and die. They didn't have the medical technology to be able to make it more livable. Frequently, this is the uh, sexy Victorian wasting disease. Uh, people suffering from it are, are depicted as needing to be kept outside in the cold or the cool because they were running incredibly high fevers and your brain was cooking inside your head. So there's a, there's a point where she's inside a thermal sleeping bag out in this frosty night along with other people suffering from TB and, and she's kind of hunkered down looking out at the stars in this little burrow of cloth that she's got and she feels incredibly lonely. And she makes the decision to come back to him and spend some time with him because she can feel herself slipping away and wants to give her life meaning by being with him. But he has to make the decision to accept this as an adult. And this made me think about one of my favorite musicals of all time, Moulin Rouge. And we will definitely be covering that again soon. But I thought to myself, that was a serious adult decision she had to make, and he did too. Oh shit, Satine never mentioned it to Christian, like ever, putting him in danger every single day, every moment they kissed, all the time. It's not as virulent as, say, the flu or a cold, and it won't kill you as surely and immediately as many other uh, contagious diseases. But it is something that lingers, and it is something that weakens, and it definitely can pass between people that you see on a daily basis, such as your family members, or people that you kiss deeply every possible minute of the day, like your lovers. TB wards in hospitals, uh, before they had like proper antiseptic and antibiotic type treatments, they would hang sheets around the bed that had been soaked in carbolic acid. Mm. The idea being that the as the germs hung in the air, the acid um, would kill the, them. The, yeah, the carbolic would would kill them. Much of early Bad medical smell, science. But <laughs> much of early medical science was estimation and guesswork rather yeah. than uh, based on anything yeah. verifiable. I I don't doubt that during the period that Moulin Rouge is set, they did not have a clear idea of how it spread, but. They yeah, could probably tell bit. that you could catch it off other people. Yeah, there's a reason that mothers who had it tended to be confined romantically to their bedrooms. It's so that the kids wouldn't catch it from yeah. them. Including, I believe, Miyazaki's mother suffered from tuberculosis. So this feels incredibly personal. Uh, his father worked in aviation. And again, this was a ghost that uh, Hayao Miyazaki was trying to deal with. His own disapproval of his father's 
decision to make these engines of death. And at the same time, the suggestion gets put forward by uh, uh, the Tooch, the this <laughs> uh, Stanley Tucci, the um, the imaginary mentor, the imaginary mentor based on an absolutely real person who he definitely actually does meet, mm. and is exactly as he expected. Uh, Giovanni Battista Caproni uh, says, "Think of a world without the pyramids. Would you trade slavery for that?" And I think every rational person watching would be like, yes, yes, I absolutely would. A world with less wonder. I don't know, maybe get the Egyptians to build the pyramids off their own backs. Which is a fundamental uh, uh, dissonance of philosophy between, I would imagine, not only the, uh, uh, the real man, the fictional character, and Miyazaki himself, for whom, while he loves this beautiful thing, this air flight, he hates the darkness that comes with it. Yeah. And, and the fact that we must use it to hurt people. There's there's an underpinning sort of I I I don't know how explicit this message is trying to be, but one of the the elements of it that came across to me was the lament that what we have is there because it has been funded and made possible by horror. It feels like we that's a reductive argument because yeah, like, imagine we, a world where it wasn't, I feel like we'd be in a better place right now. That's the thing. Rather it's, than pointing at it and going, well, slavery works. It's so. imagine a world where those things never happened, but you don't know what the alternatives would have been. Like you said, it's entirely possible that a group of people would have gone, you know what, we really, really want these pyramids with passion and enthusiasm. I want to build it to impress we my cat. Are, so. yeah, absolutely. There you go. We we are going to put the effort into doing Cat this. Cat turns its nose up immediately. Without the necessity. Go home, boys. Of having slaves to do it for us. Maybe, just, just maybe, maybe, if there wasn't huge military funding because there's wars going on, somebody would find a more peaceful reason to want flying machines. Anyway. I mean, the right but we'll never know because we don't have that world. The Wright brothers weren't thinking... When can we attach a chain gun to this thing? <laughs> Indeed. But I mean, they were thinking, even, oh fuck, it's gonna fall. There's even a moment in, I think it might be, it's gotta be the first Iron Man. When he, when Tony Stark says that XYZ was made possible through military funding. Mm. But there's other ways and other reasons to at, innovate. At that point, Tony is rationalising uh, in order to well, make exactly. excuses. He, he then reaches the conclusion, oh yeah, maybe there's other reasons that mm. we could do this. Yeah. This is the second appearance, isn't it, of the, uh, the, the flight. Yeah. That takes place at the end. The uh, ultimate decision uh, that they make after they've been together and, and uh, they, they do see each other for a while. He works all day, but he gets to be with her at night. She takes herself out of the equation, goes back to the sanitarium without telling him so that he can remember her not gasping her last, so that he can idealize her. And there's a... Oh, the end sequence for this whole film. It's some of uh, Hayao's finest work, and again, would have been a wonderful, melancholy piece to uh, end on. It's a dream sequence again. We begin with the dream of a child, and we end on the dream of him as a middle-aged man. He knows the point when his wife has passed away, and he dreams of a grassy hill with overgrown wreckage.
grassy hill with the overgrown wreckage of planes, pondering in his unconscious mind the results of what he's doing because he's putting seats underneath men who are taking off into the sky. And specifically the Japanese Zero is connected with suicide runs and pilots who nobly got in them but were definitely going to die and to throw themselves at the enemy. So he sees what Pulco Rosso saw. This serpentine streak of ghost planes flying up into the clouds knowing that he's helping put so many there and looking back to his wife telling him he has to live and effectively you have to live with knowing this it is a sobering film to watch and to experience and a worthy end to a career all from us this week but the studio ghibli series will continue to play us out we have one of my favorite tracks from arietti by cecile corbel the neglected garden